So discipleship is more than just believing. You probably knew that. But there are many who never go further than just believing in Jesus. There are many who uh, are only convenient churchgoers, right? You know, well, I slept in. You know, or um, I got busy. Or I saw this thing on television. Or, you know, I just wanted to stay in my pajamas. And they never move out of their discomfort. And church is just when it's convenient. The same thing goes, um, they embrace the promises of God. They even believe that God's word is true and reliable, but they don't study it for themselves. They don't go deeper. They don't have a devotional life because they never find time. It's like, oh, well, you know, I was doing this. I was so busy. They believe in the Lord though. They believe, but they just don't know the glory of going that one step closer. You see, discipleship is a different category altogether. It's a school that we sign up for with Jesus, where he's our teacher, and he's going to teach us of his ways. It is what Jesus desires us all to enter into, and what Jesus desires for us to entice other men and women to sign up for. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Because part of discipleship is Jesus is our teacher. You see, it's the one who desires to be immersed in the will and purposes of Jesus, to go on, to learn, to grow. It's an active pursuit, and there's a hunger and a thirst to know more and more and more of the inexhaustible glory of Jesus Christ. There's a realization that I have not arrived, that this thing, This relationship with Jesus is multifaceted and has so much more to enter into. The soils, uh, the soils, the soil of a disciple's heart is the one that gives the greatest reception, room, and attention to God's word. Again, discipleship is a school or a college where our classes include learning the authority of Jesus learning the provision of Jesus, learning the preparation of Jesus, learning the revelation of Jesus, learning the power of Jesus, and learning the attitude of Jesus. Because a disciple is one who becomes like his master. So it is a training. Now, I don't know... um, what kind of college or what kind of um, classes you've taken. But usually there's a class where you learn and then there's a training. Sometimes it's the test. Sometimes it's what's called a practicum. When I was in college, I had to student teach. And I remember I had to take everything I was learning and put it in a classroom and see if my if I learn the methodologies, if I learn the insights into, I got junior high, into the sixth grader's heart, it was a practicum. It was a time to take what I was learning and put it into practice, but it was all part of my college class and preparation. So Jesus calls every believer to discipleship, but not every believer, as we mentioned before, is ready to follow Jesus completely because there are certain requirements. And somebody, sometimes people look at the college requirements. Have you ever done that? The class requirements, you know, in this class, you'll be required to make a historical timeline. You're like, I don't want that class. You know, in this class, you'll be required, you know, to collect bugs, not even. You know, sometimes when you see the classroom requirements, you're like, I don't think I want to, I don't think I want that. But there's a cost. There's requirements that must be met. When Brian and I were moving to England, I remember telling my parents and uh, 
I remember my mom just screaming. You know, we said, um, my dad was looking really upset. He was kind of rubbing himself. And my mom said, what's wrong, Chuck? Because she could tell something was wrong. And he goes, the kids are moving to England. And I remember having kind of an out-of-body experience because my dad was upset going, who are these kids that are moving to England? And then I realized I was the kid and Brian, and we were moving to England. And my mom went, And she looked at me and she said, why? Why? And the only thing I could think of is, it's the Lord's will. And she just looked at me like, there was nothing more to say. You know, my dad kept rubbing his face. My mom's crying. And I remember my daughter, Kelsey, went up to stay with them. She was five at the time. And, and my mom kept saying, Kelsey, I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you. And she goes, Grandma, it's the Lord's will. It's the Lord's will. And as I was coming to pick her up, she turned to my mom. She said, oh, Grandma, why is it the Lord's will? The next day, my mom called me. It was a Sunday morning. I was down in Vista. She was up here getting ready for church. And she was crying really hard. And she said, Cheryl, Do not let my tears dissuade you from doing the will of God. Don't let anything I say or do, because I cannot guarantee that I'll be good about this, but don't let it keep you from doing the will of God. And she said, Cheryl, for 20 years, I have been praying for England. I have had such a burden for England. But I never knew that this would be the cost. There's a cost to discipleship. And sometimes when we see the cost, we don't enter into it because of the cost. At the end of chapter 9 of Luke, we see three men who stopped when they saw there was a cost. This one, we're told he was a scribe in Matthew's gospel. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have their holes and birds of their nest. Birds have their nests, but the son of God has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, the cost was going to be material security. You know, I love missionaries because they've given up material security. They don't have insurance usually. They don't have bank accounts, uh, well, savings accounts. They don't have houses. They've given up all. And this is what Jesus was saying. And when this man heard the cost, he didn't go forward. Another man, Jesus called to him and we're told that he was following Jesus And the word there is akulolitho, theo, which means actually to hear and to go after Jesus. So he was following, he was hearing and going after Jesus. But when Jesus said to him, you know, follow, come on, come deeper, come into discipleship. The man said, let me first bury my father. What does he mean by that? He's saying, "Let, let me first Take care of my family. When all my family obligations are over, then I'll come follow you. And there are a lot of people that say, you know, I'm not ready for the discipleship course. I've got obligations here on earth that I feel I have to meet before I can follow. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You come and you follow me. In other words, let the spiritually dead take care of the spiritually dead. You know, part of the cost is leaving family. It's to walk away from those who refuse to know the Lord and won't know the Lord and are holding you back. Some people have had to leave family. Some people have had to leave relationships. Some people have had to leave friendships. Some people have had to leave places, jobs to fully follow the Lord. The next man who didn't like the requirements of the school of discipleship In verse 61 of Luke chapter 9, 
says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. This was the cost of time. He still had some things on his bucket list that he wanted to do before he followed Jesus. Years ago, I had a girlfriend and she said to me, Cheryl, when I grow up and get married, I'm going to be just like you. I'm going to be a Christian. I know Jesus is real and I plan on giving my life to him, but I want to get like, there's all these evil desires I have and I want to do those first. And once I get all these evil desires out of my system, then I'll follow Jesus. Coming back from England, I was hoping to see her and, you know, say, now is the time. And I found out from her sister that she had died at 27 years old of AIDS. And, my, and her sister said to me, her sister had gotten saved, and her sister said, do you think she's saved? Do you think there's any chance? But I, I think of her. I've got this bucket list. I'm I'm not ready to follow. I'm not ready to enter because there's certain things I want to do first. And I know Jesus won't let me do them or he won't like it if I do them. And I really, really, really want to do these things. And Jesus said, no man who, who has put his hand to the plow and turns back is worthy of the kingdom. In other words, if, if you join the school of discipleship, you need to stay in the school of discipleship. In the school of discipleship, one of the first classes we learn is the authority class. Where does the authority of the disciple come? And in Luke 9, 1 through 10, we learn about the authority of the disciple. I want you to think back for a moment to Moses. Remember Moses' call in Exodus chapter 3? And Moses says to the Lord, who who shall I say, say is sending me? And the Lord says, here's your authority, Moses. You shall tell the people that I am that I am is sending you. You see, the authority for Moses was the name of the Lord. And so we see here in Luke chapter 9, that verse 1, that Jesus is sending them forth in his power and his authority. This is all the authority that we need. Years ago when Brian was in Yugoslavia, um, he, the first time he went, it was the Iron Curtain was up. And he went to this park and he found this girl who spoke English and she interpreted for him. And he just gave the gospel to these young people that were just hanging out in this park. It was called the monkey place. And 25 of these kids responded to the gospel and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Well, Brian was a little astounded with that. Like, oh, now what do I do? So he said, I'll meet you here tomorrow about this time. And he started discipling them in the word of the Lord, just giving them the Bible and said, if any of you can find a Bible, grab it and come back and let's meet here. So for the next week and two weeks, he shared the gospel with them every day, just discipling them. And then he said, look, I've got to go home back to my wife and children, but I'm going to come back again and I'll meet you right back here. So this next trip that he was going on, this time he gathered some musicians and he took them back with him to Hungary. And he said to them, don't be afraid, the Lord's with you. And and they said, well, the police have just come and threatened us and said, if we play again in the monkey place and sing and evangelize, they'll arrest us. And Brian said, it's just an empty threat, don't believe it. So they went to the monkey place and they sang and they got arrested and they got taken to jail. And there they are in jail going, oh no, what are we going to do? We're in jail. They are Yugoslavians. They don't speak English. What are we going to do about this? Well, in walks Brian. And Brian says to the guards, you need to release those men. And they said, under what authority? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, my Brian. (laughs) Brian said, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And they said, okay. And they let them out. I said, Brian, where did you get that bulldozer? He goes, I don't know. It's the first thing that came to my mind. And they let them go. It said, all right, you're under the authority of God. Go. And they went right back to the monkey place. 
and shared the Lord. And even more kids accepted the Lord. There is an authority and power that we have in the name of Jesus. In this authority and power, they were to preach the kingdom of God. Sometimes we think, oh, who's going to believe? Who's going to receive this message? But in the authority of Jesus Christ and the power, it opens the hearts and minds to the gospel. They were to heal the sick, not in their own authority and their own power. You know, one of the problems is sometimes people come forward to prayer and they're like, I've got this. And we start giving them health remedies or have you tried this soup or have you done this vitamin? And what we need to give them is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. They were to go throughout the towns of Israel. He prohibited them because now here's the practicum. He prohibited them from a fallback plan. They were to take nothing extra for the journey. No staffs, no bags, no bread, no money, no extra tunics. That they might learn that all the sufficiency of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus to give them all the authority, all the power that they needed. The power to cast out demons, the power to heal the sick, and the power to deal with rejection. Now, maybe you haven't felt the power to heal the sick. Maybe you haven't, you know, felt the power to cast out demons. But I want you to know that you have the power. You have it under the authority of Jesus. Maybe you haven't felt it. Take the class. Say, Lord, I want the discipleship class. Authority and power. Because it's in the name of Jesus. But it also helps us to deal with rejection. Sometimes we stop short of exercising the authority and power that Jesus has given us because we're so afraid of rejection. What if I pray and they say, what are you doing? Don't pray for me. There's a a book called Gray Matter by David uh, Levi. And it's so interesting. He's a neurosurgeon who decides to start praying for his patients. The Lord really puts it on his heart. The first two chapters talk about his fear and struggle just to pray for a patient. He gets afraid of the nurses. He's a neurosurgeon. He's like, oh, what's this nurse going to say? We need to be, we need to know that God will give us the power to deal with rejection. Cities that didn't receive them, they weren't to fuss over and say, can you believe that? They didn't receive us. Awful, awful city. No, they were simply to leave and wipe off the dust as if they had never been there. As if this is an unevangelized city. You see, when they wiped off the dust and said it was as if we never have been there, it means that somebody else would go to that city. Do you understand that it still needed evangelizing? That it wasn't lost forever. In Jesus' authority and power, we're told that the disciples experienced great success. They preached the gospel. They healed everywhere they went. And they had never experienced this type of power and authority before. Remember, they were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, common men, ordinary men, failures. And yet during this time, they felt the authority and power of Jesus. They realized it works. Everything that Jesus has taught us and been speaking into us works. I love that their success piqued an interest in Jesus and not in Peter, not in John, not in Matthew, not in the disciples themselves. We see that because Herod hears about what the disciples is doing and he wonders about Jesus. Wait a second, who's Jesus? I've killed John the Baptist. Is he he risen again? Who is this man? You see, when we operate in the true authority and power of Jesus, as we learn that as his disciples, we will not bring glory to ourselves, but we will bring glory to Jesus. Now, there's another class we can take. So you could take the authority class. It's like going to workshops at When Leaders Lead. Or you could take the provision for life class to learn 
that Jesus is everything that you need for life. And we're going to learn this in Luke 9, 10 through 17. In 2 Peter 1, 3, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of those who went with Jesus, walked with Jesus, took the class, said this, by his divine power, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything you need for life. You know, sometimes we think, oh, Jesus is good for the spiritual needs. If I need peace, if I need love, if I need patience or joy or any of the fruits of the Spirit, I call on Jesus. But if I need food, I go to the market. I mean, that's sometimes how we think. But Jesus is going to show that he is the provision for all of life. Now, the disciples have come back from preaching the gospel in the different villages of Israel, and no doubt they're both exhilarated and exhausted. And Jesus takes them to a deserted place outside of Bethsaida, and he says, come and rest. Now, what we're going to read about, what we're going to study, doesn't seem like rest. When you've got a crowd following you saying, I'm hungry, it does not seem like rest. When you're, when you're laying down in bed because you're so exhausted and your kids come in the room and go, what's for dinner? I'm hungry. I need a snack. You know, that does not feel like rest, does it? I, I don't know about you, but I just finished doing all the Christmas dishes, made all this food. And my precious little grandson comes in and goes, I'm hungry. And you're looking around at your clean kitchen going, no. But you don't say that. You go, okay, honey, what do you want? And of course, they want something totally complicated. You're like, okay. You know, it doesn't always feel like rest, does it? But Jesus is going to show them that true rest is dependency on Jesus. Now, we're told that Jesus received this multitude, this multitude that had come out, followed him. We're told that there are 5,000 men besides women and children. So a lot of people estimate as high as 15,000 when you count the children and the women. And he speaks to them about the kingdom of God and he heals the sick. Now the disciples come to Jesus and say, the hour is late. Send the multitudes away because it's late. The people are hungry. We have no food to feed them. We don't have adequate resources. And this is a deserted place. In John's gospel, Philip says, even if I worked for a year, I wouldn't have enough money to buy the bread to feed this multitude. So there's not enough time or money or energy to get enough food for this multitude. But the disciples are about to learn in this class that Jesus cares and provides for the necessities of life. In verse 13, he says, you give them something to eat. Imagine getting such a command. It's like taking a test on something you've never studied. Great. You know, I don't know the first thing about this. The disciples have nothing but deficits. Again, they have no energy. They've been on this big journey. They have no time. The hour is late. And even if they worked for a whole year, they wouldn't have enough money to buy enough bread for this multitude. They're in a place where there are no resources, no stores, no farms, where they can go and get the bread. They have no money. They have no food. In John chapter 6, we're told that Andrew brought a young boy to Jesus with a small lunch of five loaves and two fish. But Andrew says, as he's giving this young boy's lunch to Jesus, but what is this among so many? What is this? It's so small. And Jesus says to the disciples, make them, the crowd, sit down in groups of 50. Now, can you imagine how the expectation of the crowd is growing? Oh, why is he organizing us in groups of 50? We're hungry. What's going on? 
So now they've got an expectation. Oh my goodness. Now that can be scary when people have an expectation for God to move and you're the, the conduit that God's going to move through. And you're like, please, please, please come through. Like, Jesus, I hope you have a plan. I hope you've got something here. But Jesus does. He has a plan. He always has a plan. And we're told that he takes those five loaves and two fish, that small, meager amount, a lunch of a child, and he gives thanks for it and looks up to heaven, blesses it, and he begins to break it. And he begins to fill basket after basket after basket with fish and bread. And then he gives it to the disciples. Now, I think that there were 12 baskets that the disciples kept taking out to the multitude. And they were feeding and were told that the whole multitude was filled or satiated or glutted. They had more than enough. Now, remember, it started with a deficit. The deficit was hunger. Hunger is a deficit, right? I'm hungry. That's a deficit. You feel hunger. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel it all the way down into my toes. It's like this whole body is empty. It, it all wants food. You know, and of course, I'm a woman, so I never say I'm hungry. I say I'm starving. You know, feed me lest I die. I remember my son, Char, when he would go to bed at night, he'd be like, Mom. I'd be like, what? He goes, I don't think I had breakfast. I'd have to remind him of what I fed him for breakfast. And then I'd hear, lunch. I'd remind him of what I fed him for lunch. Dinner. I'd remind him of what I fed him for dinner. Snacks. It's like, what? But you know that hunger, that's a deficit. But God filled not only the deficit, but overfilled the deficit. And there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Why? Because we are to know that Jesus doesn't just meet the need, but he exceeds the need. Whatever you need for life and godliness. I have seen Jesus meet the need in my life and in the life of others over and over again. When I was pregnant with um, my first child, We had no insurance because we weren't planning on children for at least two years. And she was kind of a surprise, a honeymoon baby. And we didn't have enough money. In fact, in those days, a sonogram was $100. We're like, we can't afford that. Brian and I would split our lunches when we'd go out. We just didn't have enough money. And I remember the Lord miraculously, the doctors gave us a bill um, it was 900 for their services, and we made monthly payments. The hospital was 600. I know those were the days, my friend. But um, it was the uh, ABC room or the recovery room. You did everything in one room. So we paid for that one room, $600. And we were looking at that, and we thought, we don't, we don't know how we're going to pay this. And I remember every month when the bill, either for the hospital or the doctors came due, miraculously, that money was there. I mean, to the point where Brian had these speakers that he had sold to a friend before we got married and the friend had just never paid him. The day before we had to pay the doctor, the, the guy who bought the speakers suddenly paid Brian $100. It was $90 for the bill. So we got to pay that and have a $10 lunch together. I mean, it was just, God just kept meeting the need. You know, I would hear my dad's stories of faith and like an idiot, I prayed for my own. You know, and sometimes we don't realize that faith always requires a deficit. It starts with a deficit and then God fills it. There's no other way to learn faith without deficits, without trials, without hardships. So as they're going to learn this lesson of provision, what do they have? They start with a deficit because that's the only way to learn that Jesus provides and meets and even exceeds the need. Matthew 6, 33, a scripture I think you all know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. 
Now, Jesus prepares his disciples emotionally. So here is the class of preparation for life. You need to be prepared mentally, emotionally, and that happens as you are spiritually prepared. The spiritual preparation comes from really listening to Jesus and heeding what he's saying. This preparation we read about in verses 18 through 27 and 44. Beyond spiritual authority and physical provision, we need emotional preparation. Jesus prepared his disciples for what they would be facing in the future. Part of preparation is to know what the future holds. In John 15, 15, Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus prepared his disciples. And this is how he prepared them. First of all, by acknowledgement of who he is. Knowing who Jesus is will make all the difference of whether you're prepared for life or not. You must know who Jesus is. If you think he's just John the Baptist or another moral teacher, you will not be prepared for life. If you think Jesus is one among the prophets, just a powerful prophet that lived, you will not be prepared for the future. If you think he is only another spiritual teacher among many spiritual teachers, you will not be prepared for the hardships of life. You must know who Jesus is and what he accomplished for you. So Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God the Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one, the one with a mission to accomplish. And what was that mission? The one who came intent on pain for mankind's sin, making atonement, taking on the wrath of God that he might save all mankind, that any who come to him would not perish, but have eternal life. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he told them how the mission would be accomplished. As Messiah, he would suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise again the third day. You see, the disciples were not even there. As we go on and study, you're going to find out they're talking about who's going to be the greatest. They're, they're expecting a now glory. Every, all the glory to come in right now. And Jesus is preparing them. Life is not going to be as easy or as fulfilling as you think. It's going to have hardship. When Paul and Barnabas were told to return to the churches with the message that Gentiles could be saved and how the Gentiles could walk in the grace of God, one of the messages that they gave was that it would be through many hardships and difficulties that they would enter the kingdom of God. You know, life itself is hard. Nobody has an easy life. Nobody goes through unscathed. Life is hard. It's hard for believers, but it's just, I think it's harder for unbelievers. At least we have an advocate. At least we have a friend. At least we have an immediate hope and an eternal hope. But Jesus wants these disciples to know what the future holds, what he's going to do. They need to know that this is the predetermined counsel of God as Peter would later preach in Acts 2.23 to the multitude. You, by your wicked hands, crucified Jesus, but it was according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. God allowed you to do it. But he put it all together in order to come up with a salvation plan for mankind. So Jesus is preparing the disciples for the life they would live. And part of the preparation, part of the practicum of this class is self-denial. The ability to say no. Now this stumbles a lot of people. 
Because there are a lot of people out there that think their emotions, their lust, and their urges should be allowed to govern their lives. If it feels good, do it. And they live by that philosophy, don't they? Shake your head if you know someone who lives by that philosophy. If you watch TV, you know someone. They have no concept of what it is to say no to their urges, their desires, their lusts, their emotions. Living in your emotions can be a very, very dangerous, tiring, draining thing. And we need to say no. We need to deny ourselves. Like when my grandson came in and wanted something to eat, I could have said, Grandma's tired. You know, you make something, you're seven. Actually, he's 10. You make something, you're 10. They grow so fast. But you know, I, this was a chance to deny myself and feel the, fa- the, feel the power of the Lord. Help me to bless this grandson. To say no to ourselves. I've heard people say, if God didn't want me to live this way, he would have taken away the desire. Wrong. You were born with sinful, carnal desires. And in this class, you learn to say no to those desires. Some of you, I'm going to be honest, you were born murderers. And you know it because you've driven the freeway and felt those urges. You, some of you were born, you know, ragers to rage. You're rageaholics. But by the grace and by the power of saying no through the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Those are the things we say no to. A disciple is to be more interested in the will of God than the satiation of their lusts and desires, knowing that desire and lust can never be satiated. Next, we are to take up our cross. This is acceptance of the will of God. That we don't fight against the circumstances in our lives. That we don't point the finger and blame others for the circumstances in our lives. But we lift them up to God and say, Lord, in what redemptive way are you going to use these circumstances in my life? That's what James 1 says. When you fall into diverse temptations and trials, don't get upset. Jump for joy. Okay, we're not there yet, but that's what this class is about. This class of preparation is learning to jump for joy when there's a deficit because Jesus is about to do the extraordinary. To jump for joy when there's an opportunity to deny ourselves. To jump for joy when the circumstances of our life are bearing down on us like a cross and they're humiliating and they're embarrassing because that's what a cross was. Public humiliation and embarrassment. And Jesus says, take it up. Be willing to accept those circumstances, those hardships, because God is going to do something glorious through that. So many people spend their lives complaining about and battling against the very crosses that God has brought in their life for their good and for their sanctification and for their glorification. We need to follow Jesus, to pursue, to be in his company. Again, follow Akulos o Theo. Obviously, I can't say it, so don't even try it. Akus o Theo. To hear God and follow God. We need to be riveted to Jesus, to pay attention to Jesus, watching how he steps, where he goes, where he is moving. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, my disciples will be wherever I am to seek to be where the Lord is. Then he says, those who will try to save their lives will lose their lives. When you try to protect and insulate yourself, you know what you do? You begin to cut yourself off from life, from friendship, from love. There is a need for vulnerability to be able to step into everything that the Lord has for you. 
Those who live for themselves will lose their lives in the end. But those who completely give themselves to Jesus find their true purpose, their true person, who you really are meant to be is in Jesus. The person you were created to be is in Jesus. That's where you find your purpose and your meaning. Jesus gives us the freedom to shed those lusts, those desires that have kept us from being everything that he's called us to be, to shed those lusts and desires that have kept us from following in the pathway that he has set out for us. Jesus said there's no advantage in gaining the whole world. Having everything you want, getting your way all the time. Because in getting your way all the time, you will lose your very soul for eternity. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. In Psalm 73, the psalmist was looking at the world and he started to get so depressed And he said, you know, what advantage is it that I've really walked with the Lord? The ungodly, they're the rich ones. They're the ones that are promoted. They're the popular ones. They're the ones that seem to always be at ease. He said, until I went into the house of the Lord, and then I had perspective that surely that they are walking on slippery planks. But when I awake, I will be in your presence. Our lives, our future is guaranteed for eternity. We are going to heaven where there is no sorrow. In fact, I was reading this morning in Isaiah chapter 50, where there will be no sorrow and no sighing and gladness and joy will be with us. In fact, it says that we will be wearing crowns of joy. That's our future. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. So if we have a momentary, temporal hardship, know that it is working for you an eternal weight of glory, a beautiful crown, a life with no sorrow, no sadness, where you will reign with Jesus Christ. Oh, the beautiful day that is coming. Preparation for the ultimate day that is coming, verse 26, the day where you will stand before God and give account of what you did with Jesus. If you're ashamed of Jesus, you will receive shame. If you reject Jesus, you will receive rejection. In the ultimate company of Jesus and the angels of heaven, this is where every life is going. And there are those who are not prepared. Now, let me just say this as a word of grace. Maybe you're thinking, in my past, I was ashamed of Jesus. In my past, I rejected Jesus. So did Peter. So did Peter. But Peter even had the hope of being in the presence of the Lord where there would be inexpressible joy. There is forgiveness. There is reconciliation as you begin to reclaim Jesus. And that's what we learn in this class of preparation Now, in this discipleship school, there is also the class of revelation. Often we have questions. What is a disciple's relationship to the law? What is a disciple's relationship to the prophets? We need revelation to know these things. We're told in Luke 9, verses 27 through 36, that Jesus took three of his disciples to an exceedingly high mountain, and there he prayed. First of all, we learn that there will be no revelation and no transformation without prayer. It's through prayer that we receive revelation. Now, most believe this mount to be Mount Hermon, which is an interesting mountain. It's shared now by three nations. There's snow on top of it. But in this place, we're told that as Jesus prayed, he was transformed or metamorphosized before them. Like a butterfly, a metamorphosis. He was changed. The glory of what was internal became external and they could see it. 
We're told that his face was radiant and that his clothes glowed. In fact, I love it because in one of the gospels, it says that they were so white as no fuller could whiten. Don't you love that? This guy must have done laundry before. I've made things white, but not this white. It was that white, whiter than white. And then as Peter awakens from the stupor, he sees Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus. And he hears a little bit of their conversation. And they're talking to him about what he's going to accomplish. That's a Greek word, pleuro. Or what he's going to fill up complete. Where he's going to have a victory. What he's going to establish. Peter awakens. And we're told that he's, you know, kind of halfway awake. Doesn't it seem like that's where we are? Like when we see the glory of Jesus, it's like, no, I want to fully embrace this. I want to be fully awake. But, you know, as we're on earth, it's always going to be kind of through this cloudiness, right? So he awakens. And because he sees Moses and he thinks, that's Moses. That's the lawgiver. Now, the last time we read about Moses on a mountain, he's in Sinai. And what does Moses receive on this mountain? He receives the law and he receives plans for a tabernacle. Now he sees Elijah. Now, when Elijah was on the mountain, what did he receive? He received power and plans to go and anoint kings. And we learned that after that time, he could call down fire from heaven. So Peter thinks, we're going to get plans. We're going to get a law. And we're going to get plans for tabernacles. So he says, because his understanding needs revelation. He says, Lord, let's build three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Now, I love this part. Because a cloud covers, and it's a dense cloud. In the Old Testament, whenever the glory of God was expressed, there was always a cloud. Whether it was the tabernacle when Moses would go in, or whether it was when they built the temple and the cloud came and the priest had to leave because it was so thick in the temple. And here comes the glory of God. And we're told that the disciples were absolutely terrified. And God speaks from the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Here's the revelation. Here's what we need as disciples. We need to hear Jesus and we need to realize that Jesus is unexcelled, that he has no equal. We need to hear his word. And it's as we hear Jesus and as we pray that we will receive the knowledge, the understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus has for our future and the future of all mankind. We learn that it's not about rules. It's not about rituals. It's not about our works or what we build for Jesus. It's all about hearing God's son, Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God. Next, we're going to go to the classroom of power. Who doesn't want power? You know, do you, you know, every time I would get laryngitis when I was a young mother, I felt so weak because the kids just ignored me. Because, you know, I couldn't, you know, they'd be like, can't hear you, sorry. You know, and I think as a mother, sometimes you feel so powerless. You know, you're trying to control these children who are constantly seeking to embarrass you and challenge your mothering skills publicly. Who doesn't want power, but the right kind of power? 
When Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law, Exodus 19 and 32, when he came down from the mountain, he found that the people had reverted to idolatry. Why? Because they had lost faith. Even though they saw what happened to the Egyptians in Egypt, the 10 plagues, even though they were participants in the Passover, even though they had crossed over the Red Sea as on dry land, God parted the waters. They came through. And then after they got all the way through and the Egyptians entered because the cloud of God went up and the Egyptian army was absolutely defeated in that ocean, no more threat of Egypt. They get to this place of the Sinai and by this time they've had water um, provided uh, for them from a place that had bitter water. Moses put the tree in, the water became sweet. They've eaten the manna and they're now living by the manna that God provides every morning. They get to this mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up. They see the cloud cover. They hear the rumblings and the thunder. They see the lightnings. And they go to Aaron and they say, make us a God because Moses is gone and we don't know what's happened to him. They've lost faith. They've lost faith because they can't see Moses. So Jesus has been absent from the disciples. He's been up on this mountain. And as he comes down, he's met by this father who has a demon-possessed boy. And he says, I brought him to your disciples. And I asked them to cast out the demon. Now, remember before when they were on their missionary trip, they said, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Even the demons are subject to us. But now these disciples are powerless. They've tried. Nothing has happened. And Jesus says, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long will I put up with you? How long will I bear with you? What is Jesus saying? He is saying, just because you can't see me, don't lose faith. Just because you can't see me working, just because you see evil and it seems so aggressive and so strong. And we see that this demon and this boy was aggressive. It was strong. It would seize him. He would convulse. It would throw him into the fire. It would throw him into water. It had been there for a long time. It was entrenched. Jesus said, don't think this demon is stronger than me. Or stronger than my power. I want you to still believe even when you can't see me. I've been teaching you. You've been in all these classes. Yet you haven't really gotten the lessons. You're not ready to graduate. And I'm leaving. And you need to graduate. And you need to get these lessons. So he says, here's the lesson. You need faith. You need faith. And if you just have a little bit of faith, you could say to the mountain, get out of here. Move, be cast into the sea and it will obey you. You could say to the tree, be plucked out by the roots and it will be. You need faith. Where is your faith? What's the object of your faith? You need to believe in Jesus, that he is Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is powerful, that he is God incarnate that he is still living, that he is still ruling and reigning even when you can't see him. And that these demons have no power against Christ. And this is what he says, because this is part of faith. Bring him to me. You see, even when you can't see Jesus, we still need to bring those things to Jesus. Those strongholds, those um, powerful aggressive, hurtful, painful things. We need to bring them to the feet of Jesus and not lose faith, not lose faith. So that's what we learn in that class. And finally, yes, one more college class, and then I'll let you go. The, pers the perspective or the attitude of the disciple, verses 43 through 62. What is the attitude of the disciple to be. Let me tell you, first of all, what it's not to be. 
It's not to be pride and competition. It's not to be self-importance. I am a disciple of Jesus. It's not to be exclusivity. And it's not to be condemnation. There is a need of humility that we might accept correction when it comes. So we need humility. We are all being molded by life and situations, by those crosses, into true disciples. And I love this. The disciples didn't always get it right. You know, sometimes when we don't get it right, we start condemning ourselves. I should have gotten that right. How long have I been in this class? This is my third time. It's a repeat. I should have known this. How long have I been a Christian? But you know what I found? Sometimes I need to get it wrong before I get it right. My mother had this methodology that when I would mispronounce a word, she would make me say it the wrong way three times and then the right way. And she says, now you'll never say it the wrong way again. And she was right. Because saying it the wrong way three times, I don't know. It kind of set me free. And then saying it the right way. You see, sometimes we have to get it wrong before we can get it right. And we need the humility to say, well, I got that one wrong. But now I'll get it right. Just because you were chosen, just because you're in the discipleship school, does not mean that you are perfected or that you will become perfect. You will become perfected, but you won't become perfect. They didn't understand Jesus' warning in verses 43 and 45. When Jesus again warned them and said, let these words sink down into your ears for the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They were so caught up with the great deliverance of the boy. We're told they were amazed. They marveled at his majesty. So they didn't hear, didn't understand, didn't perceive, and they were afraid to ask because of their pride. They thought they should have known. Isn't that interesting? They thought they should have known, like Jesus didn't know that they didn't know. He knew. But they were afraid to ask. Then in verses 46 through 48, we read about a dispute that rose among the disciples. And they argued about who among them had the greatest potential. Perhaps James and John and Peter felt extra special because of their encounter with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. Maybe they looked at the other and said, you ever see Moses? Ever see Elijah? Oh, hmm, interesting. I'll tell you after he's risen from the dead. Maybe they felt extra special, more loved, that God had more for them. Maybe James and John looked at Peter and said, at least we didn't say anything dumb. We didn't have to be rebuked by God. But Jesus perceived their thought. Again, Jesus knew. Jesus knows our thoughts. And he brings a child into their midst. And he's going to correct their estimation. And he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be the great. You see, the road up in Jesus is the road down. It's the road down into service and humility. Greatness comes by receiving everyone in Jesus' name. Receiving the lost, receiving the broken, receiving even the unsaved because of Jesus. Serving because of Jesus. That's the perspective of the disciple. Humility, so that we ask questions. Honoring all people, serving. In verses 49 and 50, we read that John, who came to be known as John the Beloved, was not always beloved. In fact, when Jesus nicknamed John and James, who were two brothers, he nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Hmm, 
if I had a nickname like that, I think that I would uh, pray. But they said, John comes to Jesus and he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Here it is, this exclusivity. John is saying, unless they are in our association, unless they are in our company, unless they've been accepted and approved by us, your disciples, they shouldn't be allowed to work in your name. They shouldn't be allowed to have the authority of your name. But Jesus said, well, that'll be interesting what Jesus said, since I don't have the notes with me. Wouldn't you know, I lost the last page. Okay, well, we'll go to the Bible then, huh? That might be a good thing. Jesus said, do not forbid him, for he who is not, for he who is not against us is for us. We're not exclusive. We are to love everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus in truth and see them as our equals. Even if they've got some Pentecostal bents, even if they get gold dust when they pray, even if they don't believe in creation, but they believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross or they have some evolution or strange beliefs, as long as they believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and they have received him in their heart. Now, I believe that we should be like Aquilas and Priscilla's, that in love we can go and show them a more excellent way, but we cannot afford exclusivity as disciples of Jesus. Moving on from that, John and James, um, they come, all the disciples with Jesus to this town in Samaria. And they go into this town to prepare a place for Jesus. But when the Samaritans hear that Jesus' mission, his intent is just to pass through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. The Samaritans get upset. Because if he's not going to stay here and invest in us, but he's going to those Jews, then, then he can't stay here. We, we won't even accept you unless you do it our way. And John and James, maybe because they had had that encounter with Elijah, they say, Lord, you want us to call down fire? No wonder sons of thunder, right? And consume them? Is that what you want? You know, sometimes we look at that. We look at people who are blaspheming the name of Jesus. We look at non-believers. We look at our mission field. And we say, Lord, you want us to call down fire and destroy them? Lord, do you want us to call down fire on that community and those people and the Golden Globes? You want us to call down fire? Have it consumed? And the Lord would say to us exactly what he said to John and James. This is what we learned in this class. You need to learn the spirit that you are of. And what spirit is that? The spirit that has come to save and not to destroy. We're here to save men, not to destroy their lives. We're here by example and by love and by grace and by forgiveness through the authority of Jesus to save lives, to bring them to Jesus. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus is calling us into this school of discipleship. Now, I want you to remember, school is a process. You're going to learn. You're going to grow. You're going to be trained to be a disciple. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not instantaneous. You are not perfect. We've got to go into the school of discipleship. The school of discipleship where we learn the authority of Jesus. Where we receive these lessons and the revelation about Jesus. Because we have not learned all we need to learn. We have not heard everything we need to hear.
We need to take the class on the Lord's provision. We need to allow the Spirit of God to prepare us for life and for people, emotionally, for trials, for all that we will go through. We need the class on power and how to have faith even when we can't see because faith is for when we cannot see to keep believing and that's the way to power and we need a class on the attitude of the disciples not that we've arrived not that we've graduated because this is a perpetual school of discipleship i've just read the book um cold case christianity it was awesome and i got through it i'm like wow I need to reread that because there were so many revelations. I just can't wait to reread it. And with the school of discipleship, we go through these classes and we learn so much, but we think I miss so much. I want to take that class again. And isn't that wonderful? You can take these classes of discipleship over and over and over again. He has so much for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be your disciples. Oh, Lord, let us enter into this school. Let us enjoy these classrooms. Lord, let us enter into the class on your authority, your provision, your preparation, your revelation, your power, the attitude that you want your disciples to have. Let us enter in. Let us enter in humbly and with absolute joy that you want to invest, Lord, your authority, your power, your truth, your glory in us, these earthen vessels, that we might be your disciples so that we can go into all the world and make disciples. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your person. Thank you that you love us so much. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.